0: Thank you all for your patience, kindness, and good wishes. I had to stay briefly in the hospital recently, and because of that, I had to take a little time away from the podcast to heal. I'm slowly getting up on my feet, though, so it looks like I'm back, and maybe even stronger than ever. And so here we are with episode 27 of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogy's irritant podcast that does its best to make pearls. First off, we have to play a little bit of catch up on some housekeeping. Groovily enough, the podcast exceeded 8,650 lifetime downloads while I was away. Thank you very much for that. Each episode has been downloaded over 300 times, so I know that you guys are listening and I am very grateful for you. Next, I want to thank Rose Mullis. Rose has become From Paper to People's newest financial patron with monthly support through patreon.com. She and other supporters like her helped me to buy a new headset for our guest on episode 25, Joe McGill, who founded the Slave Dwelling Project without Patreon support, that interview would have been impossible. There are a lot of things that go into making a podcast. So far, I have kept it incredibly low tech with a $25 mic, free software, and no outside editor. No guests are paid, But there are many more people I'd like to interview and equipment and software upgrades I'd like to make by the new year that would enable me to interview people at RootsTech on the fly this February because yes, I am hoping to attend for the first time. So yes, we do have to talk money for just a minute because I don't sell ad space to sponsors because I know you'd hate me for that. The only way that I can make this podcast improve and grow is if I have backing for that growth. Since I know that at least 300 people do listen to every episode that I post, and I only have 12 supporters who are kicking in any kind of financial support on the regular, I'm asking the rest of you to think about how much you value this podcast. If you're listening on a weekly or regular basis, all I'm asking is this, is this podcast worth a dollar a month to you? 2 dollars $5? If it is, please go to patreon.com slash and sign up to give the amount that you feel is fair for the work that I do and the value that my guests lend as well. Support this podcast on a monthly basis via credit or via debit card. Not only are you paying for the program that you hear, but you are investing in the future of what this podcast can do. I have a long list of book authors, genealogists, food historians, archaeologists, archivists, and other professionals who have already agreed to be interviewed. I have a list of lessons yet to be taught. Only technology stands in the way. Many knowledgeable professionals don't podcast themselves, so they don't have a mic or a headset. In order for them to come on, I need to provide them with headsets. And internet connections can be awful, so I need to upgrade from shareware to a decent editing software package so that I can clean up the sound before I present it to you. Right now, I'm working on a shoestring with less than $40 profit per month after meeting costs. It would be nice to have a little more profit too since I'm currently unable to work. I'll end my PBS moment by saying that this can be a better and better podcast if you will support it with a small amount monthly. You can also support me on Kofi or coffee I don't even know what they call it. I just know what the address is. It's ko-fi.com slash from paper to people. And it's also linked from my website in the lower right-hand corner. You can give there in $3 increments. And there too, you can give on a monthly basis via automatic credit or debit. The good thing about it is that That on that site, they don't take a percentage off the top, whereas Patreon takes a little bit for their own costs. I actually pay for my account on Ko fi or coffee or whatever they call it. I'll leave it to you which one you actually use. Patreon states the reward levels that apply to both sites. If you support me, you actually get something back, and you can check Patreon to see what you earn at different monthly support levels. Those rewards include being named here on the podcast and on the website, earning teaching hours every month, and being interviewed on the podcast. We can have lessons over the phone or over Zoom, which is the platform that I use to interview my guests. We can work on your tree in general or work on specific issues that you have. Basically, I can become your personal genealogy consultant. Thank you very much for your support so far and for listening to my ad. Now, to the issue at hand. What I hate about the new Ancestry. Within the last few months, you may have noticed that Ancestry was lagging a lot. The screens were doing weird things, and they were not answering their phones. And they made some major changes to the way that they provided hints. The screens may look the same now, but the changes in function are there. And in fact, a lot of them are bad. The problem is, they seem good. They're kind of like Ted Bundy. He looked like a nice guy, right? He looked nice, but he turned out to be a serial killer. This Bundy-like deceptive ease of use that spells out the death of accuracy in Ancestry is one of the things that we need to talk about today. The main new toy on Ancestry is definitely Ted Bundy's genie cousin. It's called Potential Parents, and it's really, really got me on a slow burn. It looks very sexy. In the past, when a line ended and you looked at your tree, either in the pedigree or family view, and there were no parents for an individual, insipid pink and blue silhouettes would be winking back at you mocking you in your dead-end brick wall lack of self-knowledge. And you would hate yourself a little. And maybe it would keep you up at night. But now, Ancestry is bringing the sass. Now, frequently you will see that in place of a mocking pink female or a mocking blue male silhouette, there is a bright green box. And that box lures you like a shiny Granny Smith apple on the tree in the Garden of Eden. And the box says, potential father or potential mother, because it is a potential parent. Now, this is designed to get you all excited and fired up. It's designed to make you think that something magic is out there and that a certainty lies beyond. In fact, it's not a certainty at all. The potential parent function is a grouping of hints smashed together under the kind of pressure insufficient to make diamonds out of old dead dinosaurs. Those hints, in turn, are culled from other people's trees. Now, let's think for a second about what I say about other people's trees. What are other people's trees? That's right, they're crap. What potential parent does is it pulls on other people's research, trees from across ancestry who have your ancestor in them. It pulls up the parent who is showing in all of those trees, including multiple occurrences of each child, because, hey, who's counting? Maybe they do have five daughters named Mary, all born the same year. It gloms them together into one common human and slaps them into the potential parent slot. So let's say I've got Annie Sinclair. Annie Sinclair has no parents in my tree because there's no legitimate documentation to lead me any further backwards. And I have the deep shame that keeps me awake nights. But all of a sudden, her two parents, the blue male silhouette and the pink female silhouette, they stop mocking me and they light up green. Potential father, potential mother, And quick as a wink, when I click on the one for her dad, up pops information about a Fred M. Sinclair, complete with a photograph. And it gives a birth date and a birthplace and a death date and a death place, his parents' names, his spouse's name, and all of his children, including a child that corresponds to my Annie Sinclair. Now, this might well be him. This might well be Annie's father, and if I say yes to this newfangled hint, Ancestry will add Fred into my tree, but it will absolutely add no sources whatsoever, nor any other members of Fred's family as shown in the potential parent preview. It will add Fred, his stats, the photograph, and that's it. The rest of that stuff will disappear. Poof. And I can do the same for Annie's mom. She's still showing up as potential mom, green box, hello, Granny Smith apple on the tree. But it may pull the wrong person for Annie's mom. It may not pull Fred's wife, according to Fred's stats and information. It may pull some rando chick with a husband named Fred and a daughter named Annie. I won't be able to tell. I can't see Fred M. Sinclair's suggested wife anymore because only he was added to my tree. You can see the problem here because the addition function is even less reliable and thorough than that of adding a tree. At least when you added someone else's tree to your tree before, you know, just when you got a generic tree hint as a hint. Each person in that other user's tree showed on screen and would get added over at the same time. Each place, each event, each name, each individual item from the other user's tree would get added over into your tree unless you elected to uncheck the box and not add that data over. But when you use potential parent, only the information for one individual gets added over and you can't hark back and see who Fred's suggested wife was because that screen is long gone. So instead of adding a chain of islands, an archipelago of information, as you do when you add information from someone else's tree, you're adding one island adrift in the sea, with no reference points to other land from potential parent. And that's very, very bad news. Now, when you do add an ancestor using potential parent, and I have done it in order to see how it works, hints come with that ancestor. However, the quality of the hints that come with that ancestor are only as good as the quality of the hints derived from the trees where that ancestor originated. Do you see what I'm saying? It's exactly like adding a tree to your tree. When you find trees in hints and you say, yeah, I think I'm going to add somebody else's tree to my tree, it drags over their hints. But if their hints are crappy, then you're dragging over a bunch of crappy hints. Well, the same thing happens with potential parent. If the person I'm adding, Fred M. Sinclair comes from a conglomeration of 10 different trees, then the hints that come with him are only as good as the hints that were examined and accepted by the 10 users from whose trees he was drawn. And we all know, once again, say it with me, what are other people's trees? What is the other people's research likely to be? That's right, crap. At least when you examine other people's trees as an overall hint, you can choose which trees to examine and which to reject. I mean, if a hint says, hey, there are 14 trees to look at, and you decide you're going to only look at one and reject the other 13, then you have that much agency over what you're doing. But if you're looking at potential parent, and there are 10 trees that made up that guy, You're getting hints from all 10 trees. Sorry, babe, you're getting it all. You're getting a bundle of bad hints. It's the subprime mortgage crisis of genealogy. This piggybacks onto another new ancestry problem, the issue of the 1870 U.S. federal census. I mentioned this a while back. It used to be that the 1850, 1860, and 1870 censuses, all of which mention every single person in the household, were what I call minimally populating. That is, you had to work each one of those censuses manually because Ancestry didn't add the entire family over into your tree. It only added over one person at a time. You had to either have a pad and pen next to you or you had to have two tabs open in your browser. One with the family group open in Ancestry where you're looking at the profile of an individual person, and you can add parents and siblings and spouse. The other with the view record view of the 1850, 1860, or 1870 census with the page of the individual you're looking at for reference. The idea was that whatever page of the census you were considering, you had to record all of the names ages, and family relationships in your tree before you started adding data from record to tree. That way you didn't miss any siblings, you didn't miss either of the parents, you didn't miss any potential grandparents or anybody else in the record. For more on this method, listen to episode 16, which uploaded on May 12, 2018. The reason is very straightforward. In the censuses themselves, relationships to the head of household were not recorded until 1880. So in the 1850, 1860, and 1870 censuses, there was no stated relationship between dad, mom, kids, potentially grandparents, potentially aunts and uncles, and potentially cousins, or potentially nieces and nephews, all living under one roof, and a variety of family members' did live together in many households over those decades. Recently, in an attempt to provide an easier or immediately gratifying experience for new users, Ancestry re-indexed the 1870 census. They took on a paternalistic role that I find rather scary by deciding who was a likely spouse to the head of household, And who were the likely children to the head of household using the order of the names as they were written by the census taker? In doing so, they also left the potential parents and in laws of the head of household out of the presumptive family group. The names are still there to be added to your tree, they're just not included in any kind of family structure. They decided that the standard family format was daddy, mommy, Children, when in fact that was not always the case, not by a long shot. Parents died together or predeceased one another, children were moved around from household to household, grandparents moved in, aunts and uncles moved in and out, cousins lived with aunts and uncles, all kinds of non standard families existed. So, this is actually extremely irresponsible. Ancestry then reset how the 1870 functioned within the mechanism of ancestry itself, making the 1870 census maximally populating in its ability to add an entire family to your tree, just like the 1880, the 1900, and so forth. But they had no historical evidence to back up their assumptions beyond the order of the names on the page. Hence, they refer to all relationships as inferred spouse and inferred child of head of household. Yikes! Worst practices, worst evidence, big bells going off, big red lights flashing. What this means is that now, when you go to utilize the 1870 census in Ancestry, it will auto-add or line up to auto-add all of the people in the family group at any given address in the census to your family. This is wrong, and this is bad, 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 because these assumptions are not backed by historical proof. And far from making a more friendly experience, it means that you, the discerning user, actually have to work harder to catch their likely errors. The people who went through the 1870 census records and made these assumptions about who is related didn't know your family. You do. For instance, I worked with a family and mom had predeceased dad. So the head of the household was dad. A woman, very close in age to him, was the next person in the list on the census for eighteen seventy. The reindexing attempt named her as a theoretical wife or inferred spouse. The children underneath the two of them were named as their theoretical children, or inferred daughter, inferred son. In fact, I knew my family. I knew that he was widowed by 1870, and that the woman living with him was his unmarried sister, who was helping him keep house shortly after the death of his wife. If I didn't know my family very well, I would have given him a new wife— I would have started looking for her maiden name, I wouldn't have found anything, and I would have been led a merry chase by a poorly indexed record. That would have seriously wasted my time. The same happened in another family where a young woman appeared as an adult daughter out of nowhere in her so called father's household. But since I'd already worked the kids, I knew that she was not a daughter or inferred daughter, she was a daughter in law. Again, saving myself time and grief. And for those of you out there who are Latter day Saints, these errors really could mess you up. These would have messed me up, certainly, if I didn't know my family better, in terms of adding people over into Family Search and starting temple work. I would have created fictitious people, as if Family Search needs any more headaches than it already has. What Ancestry is doing right now feels a lot like making a state forest into Disneyland. It's making something that was already simple and beautiful into something flashy and garish and designed to attract people who are willing to spend money in order to get quick, gratifying results. I'm not liking it. I think it's setting bad precedent. I understand the motivation. Money, cash, dosh, cheddar... Filthy Luca, big bucks. They've attracted a lot of fair-weather, one-stop users who buy DNA and skip town, and they want those folks to buy memberships and stick around for a tree or two. And I respect a person's need to do business, I do. But what they're doing is very dangerous. It's a dumbing down of a process that is and should be scholarly, time-consuming, and deliberate. It's based in history, in reality. It's not fluffy and feel-good. It's not YouTube videos and minky cuddle blankets. If you're serious about doing good work, if you're serious about researching things carefully, using best evidence and best practices, and finding the truth about where you come from, and providing good data to others so that they can utilize it properly, Ancestry has just gone that extra mile to make it that much harder. Personally, I am not a fan of my heritage. I think it's too user-friendly and thus not scholarly enough in its offerings as well. I feel the same way in some measure about FamilySearch. I thought that Ancestry was the place where you could actually have maximum control over your data. Privacy, correcting errors and indexing, giving feedback on problematic records, choosing what to utilize and what to ignore, perfecting the work on an ancestor before putting it over into FamilySearch and using Ancestry as a place to actually bridge over into FamilySearch and find errors and correct them in FamilySearch. Now I feel like these sites are engaging in a race to the bottom. But I don't know, maybe I got grumpy while I was sick. Then again, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Ancestry did bring back the family group sheet. Yay! This is good. It's possible to view and print a family group sheet for any particular individual and his or her parents, spouse, and children. You can find that in the tree view by highlighting a person on your tree, and then clicking on the down carrot next to the name of the tree. It's very handy, particularly if you need it in order to take it to a library or to a family member to do any kind of research or to have a discussion. And Family Search has slightly redesigned its profile screen to make things a little bit smoother and easier to use. Searching for a possible duplicate by ID number is now its own clickable line on the lower right of the screen on any ancestor's profile, which does make life a lot easier, but you still have almost zero control over the data. So that's annoying. (sighs) There's no correcting bad indexing in FamilySearch. That annoys me too, you know that. But that's a discussion for another day. Despite my growing misgivings with Ancestry, I do believe that Ancestry is still the place to do primary online research before stepping off the curb and into traffic. I asked folks in the Facebook group what's been driving them crazy about New Ancestry lately, because I know I'm not alone, and here's what they had to say. Connie Sabo mentioned another totally freaky thing happening with hints, and their dumbing down. She said, I type in a name, a date, and a location, and the top responses are often way off. Seriously, if I'm looking for Steve Cannon in Georgia in 1870, I'm probably not wanting Edna Canton 1930 census in Missouri. Yeah, Stacy Cole agreed, and so do I. Ancestry is getting fast and loose with hints. This is the antithesis of having to use the spyglass and card file to hunt up possible records. Make it easy is actually becoming make it inaccurate. I'm getting piles of hints from UK collections too. Is this happening to you at all? Including hints from wrong genders and from wrong centuries, just like the ones that Connie mentioned. I'm glad that new UK collections are becoming available, but let's not OD on them, yeah? Some people who use Ancestry, I think we all know this, add every hint that they get because they have no idea what they're doing. And because Ancestry historically has been a database that learns from the habits of its users, Ancestry is learning bad habits and suggesting idiotically grouped records as hints. The dates, places, and even generations are off. And for some reason lately, it has been a really steep process. It's like all of a sudden somebody jumped off a cliff. It's the denigration of best practices. It's the ignorance of best evidence. It's like putting a six flags at the Grand Canyon. Stacey Cole also observed, I don't mind the untrustworthiness of other people's work. That's human nature. But I do wish Ancestry would give us better tools. Chromosome browser. Customizable ways to mark our DNA matches. More graphical ways to view our DNA matches. Yes, Stacey. Yes. We should not have to upload to GEDmatch to get triangulation tools. It's silly. Stacy made another salient point that I've heard many times for a while now, and when I say a while now, I'm talking years. I don't trust that Ancestry is actually delivering all those messages I send people, or sending me their responses. I got an email saying I had a response, but it never appeared in my inbox. If they are delivering the messages, they need to make it more apparent to people that they have a message to right stacy i know so many people who are using ancestry dna to establish contact with people who will help them establish the identity of a parent or both parents they're looking for crucial connections to ancestors to cousins they're looking for their parents for pity's sake they're looking for photographs or other types of data that they really need for purposes of identification, it's not just a hobby for them. And they send out these messages and there's nothing there for them. I can't believe that 100% of the no response out there is just simply people not responding. There's, there's some kind of a problem with the system. And that's why I urge everyone listening to do a couple of things. First, use a real name unless for some reason it's simply not safe for you to do so, on your profile. Second, use a photograph of you, your face, not your cat, and not your family crest, on your profile. Oh, and in response to a tweet by Jennifer Mendelson that went out just today, wear a shirt, it's not Tinder. Dude, seriously. Third, fill out your profile completely. Go for it takes a minute, not a big deal. Fourth, make sure that folks can reach you in some way outside of Ancestry. I'm not saying list your phone number, but make sure that folks can find you somehow, some way. If we rely on Ancestry too much for communication, we will never be able to be found, obviously, because this has been an issue for quite a while. I provide Ancestors Alive's URL as a way for people to find me because I have a couple of contact forms on there and by hook or by crook, if people Google Ancestors Alive, they're going to find my Twitter, they're going to find my IG, they're going to find ways to hunt me down and they're going to be able to get a message to me. So that's a good thing. Your Instagram account, your Twitter account, those are great ways to be found and people will not be showing up on your doorstep. Be safe, you know, but but be findable. If we have to hotwire this car, fine, let's hotwire it. Let's brainstorm and find ways around as many of these problems as possible. In summary, I've been on Ancestry since 2000. I will still teach Ancestry in my classes and on this podcast because I believe it is the best way to research online. To be clear, Throughout 2018, I have examined, re-examined, and refined what it is that I believe is the best way to do this work. So here's the deal. Do your research on Ancestry, initial research on Ancestry, not other sites. Refine and perfect people one at a time. Cross that research over into FamilySearch because FamilySearch is free. Checking for duplicates and merging them as you find them. Upload photographs and documents to FamilySearch because again, Family Search is free. Encourage all of your relatives who are interested to get free memberships to FamilySearch so that they too can enjoy all of your discoveries and all of the photographs and documents that you have uploaded. Because the church is gonna be there pretty much forever and so is Family Search. This will also allow them to upload photographs and documents and to tag family members in those photographs and documents. And that's cool because when you find stuff like that on Ancestry, it's great, but you know, it might be there one day and then gone the next before you've had the chance to save it. The important thing is that we make everything available to everybody, right? Best place to do that? Family search. Make family search what it is supposed to be a one-world tree. Use Ancestry for what it is supposed to be, a personal scratch pad, a whiteboard, a workspace. Don't let the jealous, divisive nature of human beings be a bar to discovery. The fact that people can keep their trees private, don't let that get in your way. Don't get annoyed by that. Don't let it bug you. Just let it roll off your back. Share what you find Either about your own people or about people for whom you do research, your friends, your clients. Put that on Family Search so that all can enjoy. This is a service, it's a community. We do this for ourselves and one another out of love. Ancestry, it's a means to an end, it's a crucial tool one we need to learn how to use properly, but it's not one that solves all problems. Just as family search isn't, just as my heritage isn't, just as going to the library isn't, just as human memory isn't. Use your research in Ancestry to build a tree that will lead you to the next step at a brick and mortar, another website, or a family reunion. Use Ancestry to achieve all you can and then take it to the next step. Well, that's all the snark that I can muster today, so thank you for listening and for laughing along with me. I hope you had a good time. It's really good to be back. If you want to be on an episode of The Family Cookbook, or you want to be interviewed about your work in family history or a related topic, go to AncestorsAliveGenealogy.com and fill out the form please go to ko-fi.com slash from paper to people or patreon.com ancestorsalive ancestors alive to become a financial supporter of the podcast so that we can go further together. You can also find those links on the website. Until next time, have a great week. Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. Beware of potential parents. And above all, Expect surprises.